Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. When the universe is talking to you, you can ignore it. You can run away from it, but it's going to come to you and you're going to have that meeting. It's going to happen. And that's what I was doing. And when I came to that realization that, okay, there is something that is bigger than me that I'm being tasked to take care of. When I embraced it, that's when I realized, oh, that's what this, that's what this is all about. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Hey, good people. Today I have the honor and pleasure of interviewing Dr. Obed Magni. Obed is interesting because he's a police officer who's actually interested in police reform. He founded an organization or co-founded an organization called the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. His truth was that success is not always linear and that sometimes you have to go through things. But as long as you stay focused and stay consistent, success will find you or you will find success. We talked about a shooting that actually happened in Sacramento where he is a police officer currently and some of his thoughts around that. We finished up with talking about emotional intelligence and policing is one of the things he does is he, he's an actual trainer in emotional intelligence and he works with uh, departments and uh, corporations. So close your eyes and open your ears and enjoy this one. You know, there's a lot going on in our nation right now, not just with the pandemic, but with a uh, enhanced focus on police shootings and, uh, of unarmed black folk, people of color. So this is a this is a good one. It's nice to talk to someone who is a police officer, but who's really focused on trying to uh, do the right thing. All right. Enjoy. Talk to you soon. Good people. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Prescription Podcast. Well, today I got a good one for you. We got a police officer out in Sacramento, but he's also a doctor, a doctor of education, and he also is a founder, a co-founder of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Can you believe something like that actually exists? I was shocked when I learned that, and I was super happy when he was uh, recommended to me to come on the show. Obed, what's going on, man? What it is, what it does, what it didn't. What it did, what it do. (laughs) Doing good, man. Doing good, feeling blessed. You know, uh, the pandemic is going on, but we are still going on. Dual pandemic. Dual pandemic. We got two pandemics. Yeah, straight up. We got two pandemics. Just to give a little quick background, Obed, uh, you know, you told me, which I didn't know before we started, that you actually, your family's from Haiti. You guys immigrated here to the U.S., to Boston. And then you went out. I think you got a degree, got a degree in Boston. And then you went out west. That trip, I'd like to hear about why you decided to do that. But you went out west and um, 
got your doctorate and you're also currently on the uh, Sacramento Police Department. Is there a particular, I mean, on, on the website, it said you do a lot of different things. Is there a particular um, unit that you work with? Is narcotics or what do you do? Um, for police? You just, patrol. You, you patrol. So we, so I'm actually, uh, we are actually just talking to like, I'm not going to say a real cop, but you're like, you're, you're the guy that's out there in the street every day with the camera on your chest and, you know, dealing with the community. Yes, sir. That's great. That's what I do. One of the many hats that I that wear. That you wear. Yeah. No, you do a lot. You, you, you do a lot. And um, one of the things I like about you and people like you is that you're not just satisfied with, all right, I got my job nine to five, then I'll just go home and veg out and, you know, watch football and drink beer. You're like, yo, I got a responsibility. Yes, I'm a police officer, but I'm also, I have other responsibilities in the community and other things that I'd like to see happen. You own a business, you're on the, you know, one of the co-founders for American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. You're also on some other NIJ, uh, what, what is that? Well, tell me what that one is. <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm an NIJ lead scholar alum. Yes. It's a three-year Yes. So the NIJ is the National Institute of Justice. It's the research arm of the Department of Justice. And so uh, each year and LEADS, I should probably mention what that is. Uh, So LEADS stands for Law Enforcement Advancing Data and Science. So with policing being in the crisis that it's that it's in right now, there were a few people who saw the who saw this tsunami coming. And one of the things in policing is, you know, we do a lot of training. We do a lot of we do a lot of things that aren't rooted based on research. So we don't know what works, what doesn't work. We don't have metric systems to say, hey, this is effective. Hey, this is not effective. And so, you know, the NIJ wanted to establish science or make sure that science is part of everything that we do in policing so that we know that we're not doing harm to the community. We're not doing harm with police officers. And, you know, we're keeping everybody safe. There's only about I want to say 60, maybe 70 people who have that designation nationwide, not just scholarly practitioners, which I guess you could call me one of those guys, somebody who's in the streets, somebody's actually doing the same work, you know, on the academic side, you know, so now we have civilians, we have criminologists that are now, you know, designated as scholars. And so, you know, obviously I'm, you know, blessed to have that designation, but what it ultimately means is, hey, this is somebody who's in the profession, who's trying to make change for the better for everyone, not just officers, but for communities and keeping everybody safe and doing it with research being a foundation. So it's not just all subjective, like, hey, I think we should do this because I don't know, I heard Billy Bob down the streets doing it, so I'm gonna do it too, so. You know, it's interesting because there's a lot of a parallel to medicine. You know, medicine really changed in the 70s and 80s when we started using evidence-based medicine, not just treating things based on, you know, or this is what my father who was a doctor did, or this is what my guy across the street does, but actually looking at, you know, peer-reviewed studies with thousands and thousands of people and testing therapies. Do they actually work? Do they not work? And so using that similarly with policing, I hope will have the same effect that it had with medicine, which was really saving lives. And I hope that that we can translate that same effect to to policing. Truth be told, we need more police like you who are actually interested, not just in, hey, I'm the, you know, the hero walking around with this gun and, you know, I can do what I want to do, but I actually want to use evidence to try to help the people that I'm supposed to be helping. All right. Enough of that. I get off my soapbox. So. Let's jump right into uh, the truth prescription, Obed. I know that you've uh, had a lot of experiences in your life from coming, you know, to America as an immigrant, to all your work as a police officer, to maybe some of your personal relationships, 
tell us a story about a truth that uh, either you were ignoring or you weren't aware of that once you accepted it, it, it created a breakthrough for you in your life or, or your, in your career or your, or your personal relationships. Yeah. So I'm going to try to not make this 15 hours long because uh, <laughs> we don't have 15 hours. Uh, yeah. I think I've got a time, but I'm going to give you a truncated version. And I didn't uh, connect the dots until after I look back. So, you know, when people think about their future and how they landed, where they landed, it's, you know, success is not a linear line. It's like there's these backwards, there's these landmines, mudslides, you end up falling backwards and so on and so forth. So here's how I kind of ended up being where I'm at right now. So I'm going to say this first. I'm not supposed to be here. You should be talking to another guest right now. Before I was born, my mother had seven miscarriages. And when she was pregnant with me, uh, there was complications through the pregnancy and the doctors didn't think she was going to make it. And miraculously, I was born. I made it. And the doctors thought it was a miracle. My mother thought it was a miracle. Well, it was a miracle, not thought, but, you know. So that's how this story got started. Getting into high school, I should say middle school and high school, you know, I was never really into school. I was at best, at best, a C average student, Okay. And I remember this moment when I was in my last year as a senior, I remember this like this was like 15 minutes ago. My guidance counselor sat down with me and told me that when I was looking to, you know, apply with colleges and everything, she said, you're not college material and you're wasting your time even applying. All right. So just think about that. She'll be talking about, yeah, you know, and, and so we talk about trauma and generational trauma. I mean, that's a separate podcast series by itself. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, growing up, you know, in a Haitian household, and I was born in Miami, Florida. Shout out to the 305 Miami Hurricanes. I'm, over, I'm a big hurricane fan, football and everything. So, and then shortly after I was born, my, you know, my parents moved to Boston. And so I'm in high school. I'm told that I'm not college material. And thankfully, I had another counselor, you know, in my corner who helped me get into school. So there was some academic things I took care of and all that kind of stuff. And I was able to go to the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Which is a great school. UMass is a great school. Yeah, that's UMass Amherst you're thinking of. That's the flagship school. I went to UMass Boston. The real UMass. Everybody knows. (laughs) So, yeah. So I'm at UMass Boston. You know, I'm playing football, track and field. And that's what I'm majoring in is track and field and football. Because when you grow up in a Haitian household, and for my Caribbean people who are, you know, listening right now, you already know what it is. You hear, I want you to be a doctor lawyer or an engineer. Actually, it's funny, come full circle, I end up getting the doctor title, right? But again, that's a separate story. (laughs) So none of that interested me. And I was like, I ain't doing none of that. So I'm I'm in college, UMass Boston, and I cannot pass the writing proficiency exam. And so I'm like putting it off, putting it off. Well, a couple of years later, I'm on academic probation. So I got to take remedial writing class or something like that, just so that I can get off of academic probation. And then, of course, spoiler alert, I was on the six-year plan. Um, we'll just <laughs> so I graduated with a 2.01 GPA, you know, nothing special. I'm a super ordinary student, okay? And I vowed I'd never go back to school. So, you know, a couple of years after that, I'm kind of in between jobs. And I say that in air quotes, you know, I'm working security job here, security jobs there. And, you know... The idea of getting into law enforcement, which was always kind of in the background, but it was never like in the forefront, like, okay, I definitely want to be a police officer type deal. You know, I started thinking and thinking and thinking, A, I have to get out of Boston because it's too cold. I'm a tropical brother. I need some some palm trees and everything. So I, uh, you know, apply out here, um, you know, to the West Coast. I get hired. I drive 
from Boston. Hey, man, let me tell you something. I threw everything I could fit in my Nissan Maxima and Ooh, drove. Wee. What year was that? What, what, what Nissan Maxima year was oh, that? Man, it was 99. It was oh, a so 99 that, was a long, that was the long one. Yeah, yeah, I know that one. Uh, uh, yeah, yep. I had these nice rims on there. Yep. Oh, man. Fire. <laughs> oh, my God. So I got to see America, and whew, I ain't doing that again. I'll tell you that right now. Man, I, man, I, I came, I saw, and I'm glad I did it, but uh, that's that. So, you know, I'm out here, you know, I'm a police officer, get through the academy. Well, you know what? Let me go get a master's degree. Because I had some people, you know, some you know, people in my ear saying, hey, you know, you should probably continue education. And I kept putting it off, putting it off, but I finally did it. And so you already know those first day jitters. I don't belong here. You know, I'm having imposter syndrome and all this stuff. A 4.0 later, all right, which, again, I'm like, how, how did I do that again? And halfway through my master's degree program, I decided to go get a doctor degree. I was really, really considering it because, you know, again, when you're a police officer, this isn't your typical nine to five job where you're going to just walk in, clock in and clock out. You know, uh, it's a job where you're not guaranteed to come home at the end of the day. And so, and not even that, you know, you can end up getting hurt. There's a lot of uh, officers who end up medically retiring because they get either to a scuffle or a fight or something comes up where, you know, they just can't do the job anymore, you know? Um, so for me, I'm thinking about my future yeah. and no disrespect to working at Walmart, you feel me? But uh, I'm not going to be a Walmart breeder if I find myself in that position. I know that uh, God called me to a higher power or to, you know, to do great things. And I, and I wanted to position myself for that. So I go and get my doctor degree and, you know, I'm having troubles because I'm like, man, I don't think I belong here. And I'm, the imposters are coming back and so on and so forth. I end up being the number two person to defend my dissertation before the coursework was over. It sounds like, Obed, the, the truth that you came to, which you said is sort of in the beginning, is that success is not linear. And it so you were able to see essentially that you can go from having a 2.0 to a 4.0 and it be in the same lifetime. And it mm -hmm. sounds like the real truth was be patient with yourself because if you're consistent, you'll make it. That's, that sounds like the truth that, that you were, that you gleaned. Really quick mindset question. What changed in your mindset from the 2.0 student to the 4.0 student? Purpose, 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 purpose. If I didn't mention it, it's a purpose. <laughs> okay. When the universe is talking to you, you can ignore it, you can run away from it, but it's going to come to you and you're going to have that meeting. It's going to happen. And that's what I was doing. And I was like, hey, you know what? Because again, growing up, I didn't have any mentors. I didn't have any older brothers and sisters. I didn't have people who especially look like me who were in those prominent positions to be like, hey, man, you know what? I got you. This is what it looks like, you know, so on and so forth. It's that, you know, reach one, teach one and, you know, reaching back and bringing those others with you. I didn't have a roadmap. Nobody gave me a road. I, I was building the plane as I was falling out of the sky. You know what I'm saying? So the purpose thing was what did it for me. And I always knew because, again, my mother said, you're not here by accident. God has a purpose for you and you need to embrace that. Yeah, yeah whatever. Mom. I know. Sure. Yeah, whatever, whatever. And when I came to that realization that, okay, there is something that is bigger than me that I'm being tasked to take care of, when I embraced it, that's when I realized, oh, that's what this, that's what this is all about. Yeah, so that's the difference. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so it was, it's about, it was about purpose for you. Okay. When I realized that my purpose was to do better, and I'm saying this generically, of course, 
to help other institutions and to help people at the same time. That's when I knew I had to embrace service to others. That's that's my purpose in life is service to others. It may not be, I thought it was going to be in this lane, not knowing it's going to be over here in this lane. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You get off on the wrong exit, you got to go back and get the on-ramp to go the other direction and come back. We've all been there. (laughs) Absolutely. To the Holland Tunnel. Oh, you know what? I was supposed to go on the George Washington Bridge. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? All right, Obed, let's jump into some questions. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but let's talk about emotional intelligence and policing. Talk about Talent Smart and the work you do with them. So, Talent Smart's the largest, well, I, well, yeah, I guess you could say they're the largest uh, emotional intelligence trainers, you know, in the United States. So, there's, that's just one avenue. So, it's not, you know, it's like, so if I come into an organization, right? Uh, and they're like, hey, you know what? We want our command staff or we want our leadership team or whoever it is. We want to, I don't know, improve our relationships with X stakeholder, whatever that is. So some of the tools that, you know, I have with uh, Talent Smart, whether it's 360 evaluations and so on and so forth, you know, I can administer those things. So again, that's just one resource, one resource of many that I offer. The point that you're making is that when I, when I say talk about emotional intelligence and policing, like when you go in and you talk to a department, what are some of the things that just very high level that you discuss with them to get them in line with the principles that you're trying to teach? So I'll give an example. You know, you may have an organization, the issue is morale and it's morale within the organization, right? Because we all know, I mean, you've been on an airplane before, right? Well, what do they tell you? Hey, when that mask comes down, you got to take care of you first before you take care of the next person. And the foundation of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. So for any organization, if, you know, let's say you want to improve morale in the department because of whatever reason, right? You first have to realize you got to look within to see what the issues are with you and or the leadership team or whatever that is. Because again, you being a medical doctor, right? If I come to you and I said, hey, I have, I don't know, pain in my, I don't know, my left leg or something like that. It could be something as little as maybe you sprained a play in basketball or something as serious as a blood clot. But you're not going to know until you do a deep dive to find out what that is. And I'm not trying to say that an organization is a human being, but you got to look at it from that standpoint. So that's one example, one component. If it's an issue of, you know, you've got officers who are having issues with dealing with people out there in the streets. If you have an officer, for example, that doesn't know how to communicate with the uh, general public, what resources are being given to that officer to help him or her be better at their job? You know what I'm saying? That resource is at best scarce. I'm just keeping it real with you. You know what I'm saying? Um, It's one thing that supervisors say, hey, don't do this, don't do that. But what if it takes some intense coaching to solve that problem? Structured coaching. Structured coaching. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Okay. And, and coaching based on research and what actually works, not just coming in and saying, hey, you have to be nice to people and, you know, don't, you just smile more. It's, you know, it's a lot more work than that. And it's like anything else. It's muscle memory. You got to work on these things consistently over time to unlearn and then relearn how to be more effective with that kind of stuff. And I think for some people, because this is some of the work I do um, in my coaching business, in order to unlearn something, you really have to start doing deep dives on the beliefs and false beliefs that you have as an individual, right? Because you can tell somebody to be nice, but if deep down inside you don't think that person is human or you think that that person is, uh, you have some negative connotation about this person you're trying to be nice to, you're not going to be nice. So, you know, it's really about excavating 
and transforming your own self to be able to actually deal with people where they are. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah. And you're not going to get that in a 15 minute conversation. No, no, absolutely not. You're not going to get that with a supervisor, subordinate, 15, 20 minutes. That's not going to happen. That's going to happen long term over time. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. So, you know, you we talked about at the top that, uh, you know, you're a co-founder of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing, which I love. I wanted to talk about a case that happened back in March 2018 in your town in Sacramento, uh, Mr. Stefan Clark, for those who don't know the the story, long story short, he vandalized something and then was running from the police, ran into his backyard. He had a cell phone in his hand and they shot and killed him because they thought the cell phone was a gun. Just this year, in March 2020, the officers were uh, exonerated. So utilizing or using evidence, how would you approach that case using evidence-based policing? What would you try to convey? And how do you think using that evidence could maybe cause a change in the next situation that happens? Because my reading, the only thing that came out of this is they made a, there's a new uh, law now where you get, well, Sacramento police are not allowed to turn off their camera, turn off the audio of their cameras when they're in pursuit. So that's a super loaded question. But the- <laughs> and, I, and I realize you are a Sacramento police officer, so I'm not trying to, you know, get you in trouble or have you say anything against the department. It's more so looking at your process as a founder of this organization, how you could extrapolate what you guys do to that situation? Obviously, every every situation is going to be unique and every dynamic is going to be different. So it's impossible to say, hey, in this situation, you always got to do it this way. In this situation, because, you know, situations are always dynamic. They're always changing. You think it's going to go one way and then on a slap, you know, stop of a dime, it ends up going a different way. So like with football, I don't know if you watch football, but, you know, it's like sometimes the defense might, and again, I'm not comparing this to football. I'm just trying to give you an idea. You think things are going to go one way, but then something else arises and then you got to adjust. So with that being said, it actually, this goes to a bigger issue in policing. So we have 18,000 police departments in the United States. We have 18,000 different department policies when it comes to use of force, when it comes to just about everything that you can think of. So as an example, if you were the police chief of Anytime USA, and I'm the police chief of Anytime USA right next door to you, and your policies dictate you've got zero tolerance, you arrest everybody, so on and so forth and so on and so forth, right? And I see it a different way, and I'm using a more holistic approach, a more humane approach, you know, whatever that is, right? There is no governing board that says you have to do it this way or else. And the reason why I bring that up is in a previous uh, podcast episode, you know, you talked about you have to purchase medical malpractice insurance and so on and so forth, right? Well, there is no governing board in policing. For example, the crack cocaine epidemic of the 1970s and the 80s. And we know what that did to black and brown kids. I mean, black and brown people in general, yeah, right? Community, so, yeah. Yeah, so it destroyed the black community. It destroyed the black family. And we know that there were nefarious reasons, okay? You know, Richard Nixon's war on drugs was based on the fact that, you know, hey, we got to find a way to lock these things up. You know what I'm saying? We got to do something about this. So we know that does more harm to the community than good. We know that as a fact. And we also know that approach also becomes an officer safety issue because now police 
are not seen as trustworthy and legitimate in many communities. So that's another issue. So you see how this starts to compound, right? Sure. If you choose to go in a direction that we know is going to do more harm than good, we don't have a governing board to say you can't do that. There's no, we're going to pull somebody's license and then you can't practice law anymore or you can't practice medicine anymore or anything like that. That's one of the reasons why we've been pushing for this scientific uh, you know, research and policing. And so, you know, again, you can't say that what happens in one community, you know, it should happen in every community because you would need a national police force for one community to have the expectation that, you know, a model police department's doing. I know that Sacramento is doing a lot of great work with community engagement and all that kind of stuff, but another agency doesn't have to subscribe to that. You got to remember every state, and maybe people don't know this, but every state has its own post commission. So every post commission determines, you know, in order for you to be certified, you have to have, I'm making a number up, 30 hours of firearms training or 30 hours of, you know, emergency vehicle operations. A lot of these states don't have any requirements when it comes to like emotional intelligence training type stuff. Right. Let me ask you this. Going back to the question, have you guys in the organization done any research or found any research that could have been applied to that situation? Because I know basically what you're saying is that if there was some, some set of parameters or some research that was done, there's no governing body to tell them to actually utilize it, right? So that's a separate issue. But my question is about, is there some measure or some activity or some standard that you guys found through research that would have helped in the Stefan Clark case? Yeah. And, uh, and obviously I'm not here to speak for the organization, but, right. you know, the organization has been very transparent. So the Department of Justice has come in, other government entities have come in and looked at our policies and the department's made some changes since then. Okay. And so... Again, that's going back to what I was saying is this organization, you know, that I work for that is being proactive about a lot of these things. Sure. A sure. lot of organizations aren't being proactive about this. And so the expectation is as well, if that's what they do, isn't that what everybody else does? And so everybody else doesn't do that. And that's yeah. the problem is there's a lot of inconsistencies. And that's why you can, you know, in one state, you know, the use of a taser is considered deadly force, where in another state it's considered a less than lethal. So you've got a difference of definitions for the same objects that, you know, that we use. And so that creates another problem. And well, wait a minute, don't you all talk and don't you all do the same thing? And it's just like, that's the problem. We don't, there's no, there's almost no uniformity in what's done state to state and from community to community. Okay. Okay. So I, so I can tell you, the department has been proactive about these things and they've been on the forefront. I wish I could say every organization was doing that. But, you know, again, you got to start somewhere. And right. this is why, you know, you know, uh, the work that I'm doing, you know, with my company and, you know, working with other organizations, trying to come to a certain baseline where, hey, you know what? We should be doing this. This is, you know, this is what we know is effective and efficient. And this is what's going to cause the least amount of harm to the communities and to the uh, stakeholders and, you know, to everyone that's involved. The attorney general, Mr. Barr. I was on Capitol Hill recently, and um, when he was asked about the second pandemic, the shooting of uh, unarmed black folk, he said that um, oh, in, in 2020, only eight black men have died by the hands of police. And by contrast, 15 white men have died. And, and based on that, he feels that folks are overreacting. What, what is your comment? What do you think about that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, 
I'm just going to go back to the research. I'm going to go back to history. And we have a lot of issues in policing. You know, people are going to say what they're going to say. We know that there are some issues in the profession. And to use numbers or to manipulate numbers to not include context is obviously disrespectful, not just to, you know, officers, but to community members. It kind of shows a, it gives a perception of being indifferent. Now, he may have, you know, in his mind, you know, he was just literally looking at numbers and then that's it. But, right. you know, this is what problems is we look at numbers and we don't add context to what numbers mean. You know what I'm saying? I, ex- I exactly know what you're saying, because the first thing I thought of, even if his numbers are correct, right, African-Americans, correct. we represent at most 10% of the U.S. population, at most. So why am I now 50% getting killed 50% more if you're the standard you're using are these 15 white people? That means that if only eight, if it's eight, then that's still way higher than it should be. It should be 1.5. Correct. So, so, <laughs> so that's what I, that's how I looked at the numbers. I, so I'm of a different mindset. So this is part of the, we of the like-minded folks, right? I can't spend 15 hours trying to argue that point. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm more interested in the, what's actually going on and what am I doing to affect positive change moving forward. You know, I mean, you being the celebrity that you are, you know, and people <laughs> post it, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not even trying to be funny, but I'm, I'm for real. It's just like, it doesn't matter what good you do. You're going to have people who are going to say disparaging marks, so they're going to have a different point of view and so on and so forth. And, look, and obviously you want to respect everyone's opinions and so on and so forth. And if somebody's saying something to be disingenuous and so on and so forth, I just choose to not engage because I know nothing is going to come from that. Right. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So whether it's, you know, an attorney general or a politician or whoever. It's just like, okay, so-and-so, whatever they're saying, uh, that's cool, but that's not going to stop me from doing the work that needs to be done so that everybody is safe. That's what's most important to me. You know I mean? Heck, you know, Jesus Christ was crucified. I mean, he had his haters. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I got to go out there and do the work that I got to do to, like I said, help keep officers and communities safe. That's the most important thing. You know, trust and legitimacy, and, you know, obviously it goes both ways with, you know, um, public safety, with education, you know, and all the stakeholders. And to me, I get, I cannot get caught up in the, hey, did you hear what so-and-so said? So-and-so said this. You know what? It's like, right. I, right. <laughs> that'd be nice if I had that kind of free time on my hands. Right, but, but you don't. don't. You, you're doing, a, you're doing a few things. You're doing a few things. Yeah, yeah. Let's, that's uh, what it is. <laughs> let's jump into yes or BS. Yes, sir. So I'm going to make a statement. And then you say yes or BS, and you can expound on why you think that, or you can just let it lay. It's up to you. All right, here we go. I got a couple for you. Number one, an unarmed person should never be shot slash killed. Yes. Okay. Number two, I don't think you need to explain that. Number two, communities should have their own law enforcement outside of the police. Their own law enforcement outside of the police. Hmm. Like in the 70s, the Black Panthers used to basically, they used to police the neighborhood themselves. Right, 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 right. I don't necessarily, I can't really call, that can go both ways. An argument can be made for both. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to pause that one and come back to that All one. All right, let's just <laughs> come back to that. Number three, and this goes back to the, the, the episode you referenced before where I interviewed Blue Lives Matter uh, President Joe Imperatrice. Number three, 
all law enforcement should be made to carry malpractice insurance? I'm going to say yes, but with a twist. And I say the twist because if we're doing it the right way, we won't need it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I got the twist. Number four. Officers fired for misconduct should be allowed to seek employment in adjacent counties. That is a no, but I put an asterisk. No, 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 no. I mean, and again, this is because they do, you know, they do. Obviously we, so the the short answer is absolutely not. Right. You know, if you out there doing the most and you hurting people, heck no, you shouldn't be hired anywhere else. But, but they are. Yeah, we know that that's happening. Yeah. And some states are starting to look at that and trying to change that and everything. Yeah. So I'm totally, totally, I got no beef with that. We should absolutely make sure that happens. The only reason why I was throwing a a couple extra words on that is if we just do it blank, carte blanche, and then that's the end of that, what happens is, what happens for the officer that's trying to do good? And then you got a chief that's like, nah, man, we don't want that. And they discipline that officer and fire that officer because they're trying to do the right thing. How do we protect that brother or that sister or that person? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Everything is not black and white. It can't just be absolute. Obviously, the premise of your question, you're absolutely 100 percent right. Like I said, I agree with you a million, a million, 10 percent on that. Absolutely. One one story that um, uh, did you see uh, the Dave Chappelle special? I think it's called 814, eight minutes and 14 seconds. I may, I may be saying the time wrong. Yeah, I did. this was recent, right? This is recent. Yeah, where yeah, he was, yeah, yeah. where he he's yeah. basically talking about the amount of time that the the cop's neck was on, knee was on George Floyd's neck. But yeah. one of the points he made, this it, it's sort of related to this, was that he was stopped one night. This was some years ago by a, by a cop. It was basically like you know he was stopped because he was black. He, nothing, nothing was really going on. But when the guy saw that it was him, it was Dave Chappelle, he let him go. And then two days later, that same cop shot and killed uh, this gentleman whose name is, is, can't think of it right now, uh, in a Walmart. And the guy was basically buying like some toy guns for his sons and was walking around the Walmart with these with this toy gun that clearly had an orange tip on the end that sure was fake. But somebody called in and said, there's a guy, there's a black guy walking around Walmart with a gun. And you see the video, they basically just ran up on him and shot him. <laughs> like with no hands up, nothing. It's just interesting. It's related only from the standpoint that his point was that I shouldn't have to be uh, a celebrity to go home at night, you know? <laughs> so, you know, Amen to that. Amen you, know? To that. you know, so anyway, that, I, I digress a little bit, but anyway, that's actually all I got for you. Obed. tell the people how they can reach you. Tell them a little bit about your consulting business and uh, you know, how they can get more information about the things you're doing. So uh, you can email me at Obed at, magniLeadership.com. Uh, you can go to my website. Uh, that's magniLeadership.com. You can you know, reach out to me that way. I'm on Twitter, Facebook. What's your I'm Twitter? Sorry. What's your Twitter, Facebook handle? OBZ. And so it's at O B E E Z E E E. OBZ. Yeah, OBZ. And so I'm on uh, Instagram, same handle. Yeah, that's how you can get in touch with me. A lot of the work, like I said, that I'm involved with on a national level with uh, some of my cohorts are, you know, around, you know, improving policing for everybody. Yeah. You know, it's not one-sided where we're just looking out for the cops only and screw everybody else. It's the, no, we're not just looking out for the cops. We're not just looking out for law enforcement. You know what I'm saying? But we also want to make sure uh, we're looking out for the communities at the same time. Cause you being in medicine, you already know what the number one tenant is, is do no harm. 
Right. And that's my number one thing. Whether you're in education, public safety, whatever it is, we want to do no harm. That's right. the most important thing. Yeah, so. that's a great that's a great message to end on. All right, brother. Thank you so much. I will sign off as I always do. The truth will set you free if you let it.